it's um, lovely to see you guys. And uh, we're in a journey through John's Gospel, which we started last week. And um, if you want to, some homework, read John's Gospel. Just pick it up, go online, find the Gospel, read it. It's a great thing to start with. And last week, we had some fun in John chapter 1. Now I'm looking out and I'm trying to, in my head, work out who was here last week. And uh, this is, you know, I think typically how it seems to work at the moment with COVID and sickness and travel, there's like an A team and a B team and or week one and week two maybe is a better way of putting it. And this might be week two. So um, go online and have a listen to John 1. But at the end of our talk last week, uh, someone came to me very excited and said, there is so much in John chapter one, we could just spend months looking at it. I said, that's a great idea. We won't. But how we're going to start is with a time of uh, reflection and meditation, because if you're not sure what John 1 says, uh, this is the story of John 1. It's a John 1 verse 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and we had a whole Trinitarian thing last week. We'll revisit that in a moment. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, we should revisit that now because this is important. This is a picture I couldn't get up last week, but you weren't here, so you didn't see me grappling with tech stuff, some of you. This is one way to understand God. God can be understood as uh, one being in three persons. God is light. Light can be uh, divided up into three, is made up of three constituent colors, red, green, and blue. So you can say uh, the Father, uh, the Father is God. Um, the Holy Spirit is God. The Son is God. Okay, you go, yes. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. And, and that helps you understand those are the basic theological descriptions of how the Trinity is. It's very hard to go beyond that, as unsatisfying as it might feel, without falling into some kind of heresy. As Augustine famously said, the person who denies the Trinity loses their soul. The person who tries to understand the Trinity loses their mind. So uh, take your pick. Uh, here's enough to say, okay, so there's one God, three persons. And we had a whole discussion about the nature of per Trinitarian personalism and uh, how that is really significant in terms of understanding relationships and community and society. Uh, go online and, and catch up there. Okay, so that was in the beginning, uh, blah, blah, blah. Everything is made through him. That's great. In him was life. That life was the light of mankind. God's light and life shines in everything and on everyone. We talked a lot about that in other religions and your workplace and everybody in the world. God is at work everywhere. Uh, but we've got to receive him. Uh, and uh, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. So it seems like God comes in his general revelation as light. He's present and accessible to everyone, everywhere, shining on everyone, animating everyone, upholding everyone and everything. And then he comes specifically uh, wrapped up in the person of Jesus, but um, uh, some did not uh, want to receive him. Um, but to those who did, there were some great outcomes. And then in verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. So this is important. God came and uh, the word here in the Greek is this. It's like the word pitch your tent. 
It's he came and pitched his tent. Now, can anyone think of a time in Israel's history where they pitched their tents? In the wilderness, wandering through the desert in tents. And God came and pitched his tent in a pillar of fire and smoke amongst the tents of the Israelites. He dwelt in tents in the desert with the Israelites. God is a God who pitches his tent with us, who dwells with us. There is this theme right the way through the Bible that God dwells with us. And uh, that is very significant. Uh, and as God comes to us, we need to receive him. And what happens is that as we receive him, we become children of God. Now you might say, okay, uh, what does that, oh, why am I doing this? Sorry. What does that mean? Here's a, here's a way to think of the, the flow of the argument. God equals light of everyone. The question is, who receives him? Uh, and, and people choose to live in darkness. They choose to go, no, I don't really want much to do with God. I don't want to live in God's light. I'll... So then what he does is God comes. God dwells with us. Uh, and that is Jesus. And then the question is, who receives him? And if you receive him, if you do, what happens to you? You become a child of God. Okay. Becoming a child of God is really, really significant. And God dwelling with you is really, really significant because this gives you uh, security. Uh, safety and identity. Okay. Security, safety, and identity. Or your security and safety grounded in your identity as a child of God. And you go, why is that so important? Ah, why is that so important? Because, because this is the challenge ahead of us. Jesus comes, uh, into the world and out of his fullness, John, uh, John says, we have all received grace in the place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. And then it says a very interesting thing. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The heart of God's redemption of humanity at the heart of healing the world and reconnecting us with God and with each other, it seems, according to this, that we need two things, don't we? That in God's dwelling with us, in God's coming to us, he brings us two things. And what are they? Grace and truth. So to get along, to heal the world, we need two things, don't we? We need grace 
and we need truth. Uh, how easy is it to hold those two things together? So let me, let's, let's just think of a quick definition of those and we're going to do a self-diagnose, actually we'll start off with a self-scoring of yourself. On a scale of one to ten, okay, on the scale of grace, where one is I show no grace to anyone. Okay, so what is grace? Grace is unconditional acceptance, giving someone what they need, not what they deserve. Grace is an arms open, vulnerable welcome to everyone, no matter what they've done. Grace is, I accept you, period. Grace is, you come in here and um, you've just got out of jail, done 30 years for heroin importation, and you've come with your partner who's done 30 years for pedophilia, and you come to church and we welcome you with arms open wide. Uh, we keep you off the drugs and we don't let you run Sunday school, but we say to you, you are welcome. Okay, Grace is um, your sibling who is a mad, keen uh, Trump supporter who believes that the FBI is conspiring uh, along with the deep state and the IRS to destroy Trump. And, uh, and they, uh, they believe this absolutely. It's an infiltrated everything. And you are someone who thinks Joe Biden is far to the right. And really, we should all have, everyone should have supported Bernie Sanders. And uh, the greatest threat to the known universe is Trump. Uh, and Grace is, you just accept your Trumpist sibling. Now that would work particularly in the US, but, in, but even here, you know, well, so I'm gonna, so on a scale of one to 10, in your own, when you think about your life, you go, one is, I, I really don't show much grace to anyone. Like, man, if you, if you hurt me, if you disagree with me, if you're someone, and 10 is, I am like, wow, baby, just bring in the love, just, just come here, I'm, I'm all for you, okay. Where would you, where would you scale, don't yell this out, that could be, in, where, where would you put yourself? Okay, uh, one to ten. Okay, so. All right, we've all got a number? No, so, so we can start to think about what makes it challenging uh, for, what are the challenges for truth? What are the challenges for grace? That's a good start. So knowing what, it, what is it? Yeah, what are the other reflections or thoughts? Yeah, Rob. Yeah. Yeah, unconscious bias. Um, we have a bunch of those things that operate in our lives. Yeah. Other, what are other reflections? What was your experience of doing that exercise? What? So, if you're a particularly judgmental person or truthful person, is how they would like to characterize it. Those people. Uh, it can create conflict and hurt people. So why, 
So that's the main. So when you go, why did you put yourself down at the down this end? It's because you don't want to hurt people. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, circumstances determine it very much, don't they? Or they can, yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which sort of goes to Paul's point. How do I even know what is what is the truth? Yeah, yeah. Jen, yeah. 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 Well, it's interesting. Thanks, Jen. I'm not sure if you heard that. The, the, we, we, tip, we often in our world think of grace and truth as in opposition. You can either have truth or you can have grace. Uh, that is very much how we think of it. Um, and so you're, a, you're an all grace acceptance person or you're a truth person. Um, and, and then you just slide along that spectrum. What I find interesting, and thanks, Jen, for this is a good segue. When you look at the text, right, it's very interesting, isn't it, that it's grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Like they on in our, to quote a love a phrase, which annoys me enormously, in our lived experience, as if there's any other kind of experience, I had an unlived experience. <laughs> like, what is that? It's just crazy. Anyway, in our lived experience, in our experience in Jesus, they, might, they, they have to be held together. It's not an either truth or grace. It's both. And living a life full of grace and a life full of truth is not easy, is it? Neither is easy. Neither is easy, let alone holding both together. And neither is easy for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, what makes showing, what makes being full of grace hard? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What? So yeah. What else? What else makes showing grace? Yeah, Darren. Yeah. Yeah, so let's, we'll, we'll put a bracket around the my truth, your truth discussion, and we'll come back to that in a moment. Um, yeah, yeah, I think you want to, how, what, what do you accept? Do you accept everything in people? Like some of us have a strong sense of justice and you go, well, does grace mean I just accept the unrepentant pedophile who comes into the church? Or what do you do with that? What is what does it mean to be full of grace? Someone like that? Yeah. Yeah. Ah. Ah, yeah, well. Yeah, well, actually, love and grace are not the same concept. There's, there, there's a difference because they're both big concepts in the Bible and they use different words for them. So there's obviously, I think there's a clear distinction. Um, and sorry, if using pedophile is a, I'm just choosing that because, and it's not meant to trigger anyone, but it's, it's just, it's, I feel like it's a safe group that we can go, this group in our context, we all agree that's a bad thing that we will struggle to show grace towards someone like that. Whereas every other group will be a, might be a little more divisive. Okay. Well, here, I mean, grace, showing grace, you, you can feel if you've been deeply wounded by someone, what does unconditionally accepting them look like? I mean, because that's what makes it hard, right? That's one of the things that if I'm, if I'm, if I have been wounded by you, how do I show grace to you? Or if my tribe has been wounded by you, in a more traditional tribal culture. How do I show grace to you? That's hard. Or if I am scared that I will be hurt by you, how do I show grace to you? God showed grace to me, so how can I not show grace to others? Well, and that's, that's where we get back to God dwelling with us and our identity as children of God. You see, where does the spiritual power and the emotional uh, and group power come from to show grace to others? It's because I am utterly safe and secure in my identity as a child of God. If God comes to me and shows grace to me and grace to everybody in the world, and if, if my ultimate security and safety in this world and if and if my sense that justice will be done is tied up with my relationship with jesus so i don't i i can show grace to you because i know that god will judge you 
It's not up to me. In the final analysis, I am not responsible for your choices or your decisions or your views. I cannot put an end to the evil and injustice in the world. I can do what I can do, but there, in Christ, when we go through John's gospel, there is just great confidence. God will work it out. God will keep me safe as a child of God. God will protect me. And so I can take risks of being vulnerable and of inclusion. Now, the, the radicalness of grace. So uh, inclusion in our culture is seen as a very important thing, isn't it? Like we all try very hard to be inclusive. But inclusion isn't inclusion really in our culture. It's, we're actually a very uninclusive culture because the nature of humanity outside of a deep experience of Jesus constantly working on us is actually to say, uh, I, will put, I will put very definite limits around who I include, won't I? Uh, so there's no there's a lunic cartoon doing the rounds on social media from a few years ago, where he that's cartoon about you know we are a tolerant society you know we're tolerant of everyone except intolerance if you're intolerant then we can't tolerate you that's the essence of the cartoon so we there are there are always inevitable limits so so in fact the basis for inclusion in our culture is actually conformity. Duh, just to some predetermined limits and or denial and minimization of the difference. So I'll include you as long as I don't really grapple with what you're really like and we all pretend we get along and we're all fine and we're all great and we all agree. And that's inclusion. Real grace, biblical grace is looking at somebody who is truly evil and still saying there's a seat for you at the table. There's a seat for you at God's table. I don't have to take re retribution. I don't have to kill you. Particularly because I see you who you are. And this is why grace, this is the genius of the Christian message. Because real grace, for it to actually be real radical grace, has to work with truth because grace based on minimization or denial or a lie isn't really grace it's just me pretending that you're something so it's easy for me to accept you but when i really truly see how different you are how awful you are how much i actually hate you that's hard that's much harder right so truth what is truth. Uh, at 10.40, I'll give you a lesson in epistemology. How do we find what is truth? It's not a... It's not, at one level, a complicated question. Truth is this. Here is the globe. Here's the world. I would call it reality. And here is you. And you think or say X. Uh, and the question is, 
you, you look at the world. I, I was trying to draw an eye, but I couldn't figure that out. Okay, so you look at the world. You explore the world. You take in data from the world. You come to a view that, that X describes something in the world and, uh, and, and that corresponds to X in reality. Uh, that's it. Your statement is true. This statement is true if there is uh, uh, accuracy of representation. As simple as that. Now, of course, the challenge is uh, here's someone else and they look at this and they think it's Y. They look at the same data and they go, it's Y. Isn't that what happens? Now, is it X or is it Y? I really believe it's Y. You really believe it's X. The, the way in our culture we try and resolve that is we go, well, it's your truth is X and my truth is Y. And um, we, we live in a culture that, and so where that actually leads to, it comes from a good place, which is, yeah, we can't know with 100% certainty and it's complicated and it's difficult and blah, 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 blah. Then we think all truth claims are power claims. So, um, but where it, where it ends up now is a society that accepts lies. This is the Trump strategy taken out of the playbook of, the, uh, of Soviet Russia. It's the strategy of the big lie. It, the way dictators and governments work and people work is you just say something, you say uh, X is Y confidently enough and you just keep repeating it. You don't have to convince everyone that X is Y, but what you've got to do is put in their minds the view that, yeah, maybe I'm not that sure that X really is X. And you create uncertainty and you undermine any confidence that you've really got to understand what's there, right? interesting strategy now what we one of the ways this came about was to try and stop people killing each other over religion right we all went it's really bad if i kill you because you have a different view of the lord's supper than me like that's what happened in europe you took a whole lot of political uh tribal loyalties you wrapped it up with religion like who really cares whether the bread really is the body, you know, and you go, well, this is, I'm X, the, the bread is the body of Jesus. And I go, no, the bread is just a symbol. Okay, let's all go to war and massacre each other uh, over that. Like that's a dumb idea, right? So out of that, okay, well, it's just, it doesn't matter. We can't know, everyone's, you know, no, no, hang on. The other, apart from the profound political implications of a, 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 a truthless society is it's, it's starting to undermine, we're moving into a post-scientific undermining of science as a way of getting to know reality because one of the key advances of the last few hundred years in our culture is we said, how do we solve this question of is it X or is it Y? Well, we use the scientific method, okay, to try to, to work out, can I falsify this data? And we have a whole intellectual tradition of rigorous science where you try and refute what you've held to be true so that you can get closer and closer to knowing what, how the world really is. And we're in a post-scientific age and sometimes people blame religion. 
But that's just not true because actually as Christians and, and the scientific method and the flourishing of science grew out of, amongst other things, the soil that was fertilized by a Christian worldview that says, I can actually know X, not on the basis of superstition or what priests say, but by studying God's world because it's an ordered world and God's given us brains and God shines it so I can get to know the world. So the scientific method and our scientific endeavor has been fed and nurtured by this Christian worldview that the truth is knowable. Okay. Now, do we want, how we, are, we, are you with me? Do you want another level of complexity? Okay reality can be understood in multiple different ways that are seemingly contradictory and here we have a little lesson in the three key ways of thinking about physics and understanding the nature of reality this uh this is where we started daily life uh our experience uh following newton we had classical physics the laws of motion and thermodynamics. This explains our daily life, cause and effect, out of which a whole worldview emerged, right? And you know what? It's true. This nature of this, what the, the meso cosmos is truly understood. The X and the Y in that level are understood by uh, classical physics. At the same time, then what happened was old Einstein came along and at a macro universal level developed the theory of relativity. That space and time are relative and that actually you can't think you, you when you when you think about reality at a macro level, classical physics breaks down and it, the universe doesn't operate in a Newtonian way at the macrocosmic level, but it still operates that way. And you, you don't get to know it by direct observation. You get to know it by uh, in, indirect observation of vast at vast scale. And then just when you thought things were complicated, you had Niels Bohr and Heisenberg and you had a whole bunch of physicists who started working at the subatomic level, and you came to the microcosmos where you developed uh, at, found, at a foundational particle physics level, uh, quantum mechanics. And quantum mechanics says, ultimate randomness, undeterminate, all of reality are effectively waves and and here's a great thing, a leading, I love this, a leading German physicist. There's this great quote. He says, I spent 50 years studying the fundamental nature of reality, the fundamental nature of matter, only to discover at the end of my life that there is no such thing as matter. Okay, so, so, <laughs> this goes, so Paul's comment at the start was, how do I know what the truth is? Well, it's kind of hard. Right. So it's, you know, at a fundamental level, there's no matter. We are completely porous beings that are and everything in life is really just a flow of energy. It's a flow. It's not even a particle. It's just a flow of. Of energy and what even is energy? And you go, wow, that's 
That's true. It's also true that at a meso level, quantum uh, uh, Newtonian physics works, and that's how life works. And at a macro level, we're into uh, Einstein's theory of relativity, and that's how we understand that, part, that way of life. What does that mean? Each of these levels, each of these dimensions, or the same part of reality, require different means of getting to know them. You cannot understand subatomic particles by, uh, by the senses. You're never going to touch an atom directly or a quark or a meson. It's not going to happen. So you've got to have different methods of getting to know this part of the truth. And there's a whole, but, but it's still all true. So what we tend to do, though, is we like to think that, depending who you are, that all of reality can be understood in one, in my particular favorite way. You know, it's not that simple. But it is Christian. And so where I'd put God into this, you go, okay, well, where does spiritual life come into this? Well, you know what? How do you get to know God? How do you get to know the truth about God? Well, you can't do it through the scientific method using classical physics. But you can know the truth about God. How do you do that? You do that by faith, by receiving him, by prayer, by worship. In the same way that you get to know quantum mechanics by maths and large hadron colliders and other things like that, sophisticated modeling that you, that you never see directly. You make lots of inferences. You get to know God by faith relationally. And, and it's the same in all of life. Like um, you can think about love in this way. Is love a dimension of reality that can be understood by quantum physics or the fear of relativity or classical physics? No. Love is the most important part of reality that only gets to be known how. How do you know the truth about love? By love, by being in relationship, by faith and trust, vulnerability and commitment. It's a different way of knowing, but it's still the conceptually conceptually, we're still dealing with this very simple model. All of this in all its different various forms of reality or, or aspects of parts of reality, we still have to push very hard to say, no, there's, there's only one way the world really is in all these multiple forms. And we can get to know this truly. You go, what the heck does that have to do with anything? Grace and truth to live lives of unbelievable openness and acceptance of everyone, while at the same time pushing hard intellectually and morally towards truth, accuracy of representation. There's only one way, there's truth, and we want to live in step with reality because that's when we flourish. Dallas Willard, the philosopher, says reality is what you run into when you're wrong. So it is that we need to move grace, a radical acceptance of each other, but truth, a radical pursuit of life lived in step with the way the world really is. Aren't you glad you came to church for a lesson in epistemology? I hope that's helpful. Uh, I had a question. Yeah. How do we act then when the government is implementing a war, say? Yeah. 
which goes against our ideals of what it is to how far do we extend that grace? How far do we extend grace around laws? Okay, so let's pick a... No, well, let's, we'll, we'll pick a less charged topic, uh, voice to parliament. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's way less charged, right? So, so Paul and I, you should have been a fly, Paul and I spent an hour and a half at the cafe on Friday doing what clergy do. Um, sitting around, drinking coffee, thinking great thoughts and talking about these sorts of issues. And we had a long, very long and wonderfully gracious discussion about uh, the current proposed referendum and voice to parliament. And, and he and I, uh, at this stage, and it might change because he might see the light, um, or I might see the light, or we'll discover we neither of us see the light, we discover we're, we're probably at this stage on different sides of the argument, right? Um, and uh, you say, okay, well, what does that mean? How then do you disagree well? Well, what's the truth? How will we know about, what will we, how will we come to a view about the truth of a voice to parliament? Well, the answer is this. As best as I can tell, over the next 100 years, Will reordering our constitution and our political life achieve the outcomes that we believe it's there to achieve or solve the problems that we believe it's there to solve? So over the next hundred years, will a constitutionally enshrined voice for indigenous people in reality, and we'll have to have ways of measuring how does it work in reality, uh, will it bring about what it's meant to bring about? Only time will tell. This is the problem. We, the scientific method won't help us because what we actually need to do to answer the question definitively is have two realities where the only variable we change is the constitutionality of the voice. And then we see how that experiment plays out over the next hundred years. We can't do that. So here's the alternative is we say, okay, we think as best we can tell, honestly, if I come to a view that we should enshrine the voice in this way in the constitution, we think as best we can tell, this will be, have the best outcomes in reality for Australia. And others will have a different view. And then you go at it hammer and tongs in civil public debate. And where grace comes in is you go, I'm gonna accept deeply, profoundly your intentions and your motives even if we very much disagree on what we think the outcomes will be. And in our political process, you have the ritualized warfare of parliament where you go at it hammer and tongs and you fight it out verbally and you try to come at what you as a society think will be the best outcomes. Now, what does that mean about abortion? Ultimately, it's the same thing. You say, what is the best way to order our society in reality, to flourish in reality? I argue mostly for social ethical issues like that, not from an appeal to religion, but from an appeal to, if we just think about how do we flourish within this world as we know it? And I think most of these answers can be answered that way. And then Grace says, hey, um, in these argumentative times, Grace says, I can know truly, but I can't know with 100% certainty that I know truly. 
and neither can you. So I'm going to think the best of you. And then we're going to work hard with a deep common commitment to truth and to grace. Because I'm not afraid of you. See, I'm not afraid of the outcome on any of these things. Because God is God and he will do what he will do. Now I'm going to, we should work hard and go at it hammer and tongs and bring our best intellectual resources across every area of enterprise and endeavor and relationships. And in the end, I'm safe and secure because I'm a child of God. And so are you. And he'll work it all out. So I can accept you. I don't have to be scared of difference. I don't have to be scared of you. I don't have to protect my position. That's, by the way, the best way science works. You, you hold everything loosely. Yeah, we forget God's in control and God loves us. So that's, look, let's wrap it up. We've got a, got a few more months to think about this and many other things. Uh, Lord God, thank you for your grace and your truth in our lives. And I pray individually and as a church, we will be a community that is, as you were, Jesus, full of grace and truth. And, um, and that in this world that is so often graceless and driven by deception and misrepresentation, may we stand out in this world as women and men and a community who shine and live and are full of grace and truth. And we ask this in your name, Lord. Amen.